0: Mighty God, we thank you for your word read to us, your word spoken. Now we pray that we'd be able to hear from you through your word preached and your word shared uh, through this special time. We know you're present with us throughout the day and throughout each moment of our lives, and we recognize here the teaching moment's a really important one, a place where we can really hear your word fresh and have it impact our lives and move us toward the kind of transformation that you long for. So may the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin this morning by talking about reputations. When did you first learn about the concept of having a reputation? Like there was a time in your life when you didn't know about that and there was a time in your life when you learned about that. Uh, For me, it was the social super collider of middle school that taught me about reputations, right? Like, you throw a bunch of stuff into this crazy thing, you slam into each other, and eventually something comes out of it. That's my experience of middle school. We should pray for our middle schools, right? Like, let's, let's be doing this. Lots of social realities are kind of unveiled. You start to figure stuff out. You step into things. It's exciting, but it's also kind of crazy. So here's kind of the first level of reputation that most of us learn about. Do you have a good reputation or do you have a bad reputation, right? It just starts that way. It's very, very simple. It's kind of the easiest level we can understand. So your reputation maybe when you were in middle school was that you were a good kid because. You were a good kid because you made good grades. You were a good kid because maybe you went to church. Or maybe you weren't a good kid. Maybe your reputation was you got into fights. Maybe you were kind of a bully, Either way, it was kind of a a binary system, right, in middle school. Then in high school, of course, things get so much more sophisticated. In high school, your reputation becomes a little more fine-tuned. So you drop down a level from the good or the bad, and you start going, well, what kind of good are you? Oh, you're a student, you're a scholar, you like to read. That's actually cool. That's really great. We start to see reputations being a a little less of a club and more useful when we get into high school. Maybe you were a jock in middle school, and by the time you get to high school, all of a sudden, people are looking at you and going, actually, you're really, really good at that sport, or you're really good at that activity. I had two friends, actually, in high school who were amazing athletes, so living into kind of that jock reputation, but both of them, by the time we got to high school, were being scouted and eventually received scholarships to go do pole vaulting pole vaulting at some major universities. How crazy is that, right? Like, what a cool sport, and then, oh, we're going to pay you to do this. Great, good. There's also the darker side of what reputations can bring about. And in high school, those things can get pretty nasty. There are ways that uh, our behavior, the way people perceive our behavior, starts to be assigned to us, and there's really not a lot we can do about it. High school is the first time I ever heard reputation words being thrown around like, that person's a drunk, or this girl is a particular way with guys. It was always kind of directed that way. And so a reputation, if we want to start with the defini- definition of that, is public consensus about your identity or even your character. That's your reputation. Public consensus, what other people think of your identity or your character. And it can be quite painful to think about how our reputations, even if they're social constructs, even if they're things we can try to say, yeah, 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 it doesn't really matter. You know, the people who know me really know me. There are ways that our reputations can really impede what God wants to do in our lives, or at least try to impede. And what we're going to look at today in this final sermon in our series on Women of the Bible is a situation where there are some reputations in play that these two people are kind of beholden to. Like, there's not a lot they can do about their reputations in the moment. One of them, Simon the Pharisee, he's educated, he's wealthy, he has a reputation of being a really good guy in his community. He's looked upon positively. Some of you may look at pastors this way. The woman of the city, as the text calls her, she kind of comes from a different camp. And you guys know me, you know this is kind of how I work. I don't want to just keep calling her woman of the city, I want to give her a name, so can we give her a name? Let's call her Susan. Okay, so we got Simon and Susan. For the rest of your notes today, we're going to call her Susan. That just helps me think about it. It helps personalize what this person is going through. Most scholars would say that Susan's background is probably somehow related to prostitution. The message translation of the Bible even introduces Susan as the harlot of her village. And it's terrible, but this is the reality. For women at that time, prostitution is one of the few employment opportunities that was available. This is one of the few jobs that women could actually hold. doesn't justify, it's just saying she had a limited range of things she could step into. And what she demonstrates is a completely different understanding of grace and mercy and love than we get from the religious guy, from the good guy. So we're going to step into this story today and try to understand that this text is about the gospel. And this text is about how something, even as innocuous as a reputation, something that we think we can get over or get through, it can blind us to where Jesus is at work either in our lives or in someone else's life. And the gospel is neither the way that Simon lived his life, living, following the rules, doing everything right. That's not the gospel. The the gospel is not the way Susan potentially lived her life, living away from God, living kind of into this identity and this role. What Susan actually teaches us is that she longs for the thing that we should all long for, regardless of our reputation, regardless of what others may say about us in the court of public opinion. And that is that the gospel would take an ever deeper root in our hearts, that we would so much more deeply understand and feel and experience the goodness of God, that no reputation, no, no assigning of titles by anyone or anything should shape us like the gospel does. And it's so important for us to have a distinction around this because increasingly in our day, in a post-Christian era, in a post-Christian part of the world, the Pacific Northwest, most of our friends, when we talk about faith, if you're a Christian and you talk to your friends about your faith, most of the time they're thinking you're talking about religion. They're thinking you're talking about Simon, keeping the rules, making sure you got everything clean, everything's flying down the straight and narrow path, when in fact the gospel is completely different from that. And so for us to be able to be clear about that, those of us who do follow Jesus, To be able to be clear about that with our friends means we have to continually distinguish and delineate what the gospel is and what it is not in each of our lives. The gospel is not about your reputation, guys. It's not about your reputation. We'll discover today that it's something far more exciting and wonderful than we can imagine. So you've got your bulletin. There's room to write down some notes. If you want to write down a thesis statement, here it comes. The gospel is grateful joy the gospel that God gives to us in Jesus Christ, it is grateful joy. And we're going to have kind of a three-part outline to walk through that together. We're going to talk about Simon, we're going to talk about Susan, and then we're going to talk about grateful joy. So let's begin by talking about Simon, the rule follower, the Pharisee. He's the good boy. All of us who are eldest children in the room are kind of like, I got you, Simon. I understand where you're coming from. Let's look at three things this passage teaches us about Simon. It talks about his invitation to Jesus his intelligence, and then the real belief system that's actually operating in his heart. His invitation, his intelligence, and his belief. First, let's talk about the invitation. If you follow along in the scripture with me, the text tells us in verse 36 that Simon invited Jesus into his home, sent him a message, got word to him somehow like, hey, I want you to come into my house. As a Pharisee, He would have done this. He would have invited people into his home. It turns out that he has more than just Jesus in his home. There's some other members of his order, maybe people that he knew through work who were there. And we can tell a couple of things about this scenario just at the top. He's a Pharisee. He's connected. He's powerful. Someone responds to his invitation. It means Jesus actually wanted to go and have dinner with him. And he has some resources. He has the means to be able to put on a dinner. He has a home where he can welcome people into it. That puts him in a category that we need to understand later on. What's fascinating about Simon's invitation to Jesus is that he completely fails at every social norm that would have been expected of him at the time. Now, all of us, when we have people over for dinner, we want our house to be in decent order, right? Like, you know, in our house, get all of the newspapers and coloring things off the kitchen table. Like, let's make this a little bit more clean and orderly. Doesn't have to be perfect, but we want to show people that we care that they're at our house, that we care that they show up and they're loved. This is one of the greatest challenges in our day, is showing people that you are excited about seeing them, that you're intentional about welcoming them. We live in such a fast-paced time. We live in a time when it's so easy to blow by those little things that we all know we can do well to help people truly feel welcome in our home or in our church or wherever we belong. And it's so easy just to say, "Eh, I don't have time. I'll I'll do something else about it. It's like we have a Roomba. If you run the Roomba, it's not the same as sweeping. (laughs) Like you want your house to be ready for people to come by. Even though the Roomba is helpful, it's not the same thing as really getting ready. Simon is kind of trying to pull off the Roomba trick. He's not even really doing that. One of the things that would have been expected of him as a host is he would have provided a basin of water for his guests to wash their feet. Walking around during this time, that's the way that you got places, and your feet would have been really dirty from walking up and down dusty streets with all kinds of things on them. That would have been an important move. Simon doesn't make that move. Another thing related to feet is he would have offered him oil, would have offered his guests oil to kind of help their feet feel better. Hey, I'm glad that you're here in my house. Let me give you a comfortable place to sit. Let me take care of you and make sure you feel welcome. This is one of the ways to do that. Simon doesn't do that either. Simon doesn't greet Jesus properly. Think about it this way. If you're going to go see your grandma today, good, because it's Mother's Day. You should go see your grandma today. (laughs) And if you walked into grandma's house and grandma's ready to give you a big old hug and you blow past her and you go, grandma, where's the Diet Coke? That's what Simon's doing right here. (laughs) Like he's totally blowing off his responsibility to greet appropriately this honorable person in his midst. Don't do that to grandma, by the way. That's a really bad idea. Simon's invitation is given, but it's actually more like a ruse. It's a ploy. He wants Jesus to come and experience his power. He wants to show Jesus, like, hey, I know a thing or two. I'm in charge here. The text tells us that Jesus was given a place to sit at the table, which is one of the few things that Simon actually did to kind of follow these cultural guidelines. But you know what? I bet he gave him the seat, like, by the trash. Or the seat sort of over by the door where it would have gotten drafty and cold. Not the best seat in the house. Not the seat of honor. Not the place that you would give to someone that you respect. And so think about this, if you're a guest in this home, all of these cultural nice things are being done away with, nothing is really happening like it's supposed to happen, there's no esteem being shown to this important person, and you're supposed to be sort of privy to this, that feels like a really awkward dinner. (laughs) That feels like a dinner I don't want to be a part of. So that's what we know about the invitation. It's a ruse. It's a ploy. Now let's talk about his intelligence. And really, we're not just talking about how smart Simon is. We're talking about his hope. Look with me at verse 39. This is after Jesus has entered the house. Simon has already messed up a bunch of times. And then the woman, Susan, comes in and does some amazing things. And we'll get into those things in just a little bit. But she has served Jesus and cared for Jesus. And so as she's doing these things, we get a glimpse into the mind of Simon. Listen here in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw it, saw what the woman was doing to Jesus, to serve Jesus, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what this kind of woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus, if you only knew what I knew, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing right now. We have a clear window into what Simon is thinking. And what he's actually doing here isn't what we first think. It's not just browbeating Jesus and going, Ugh, if only you knew. That's kind of surfacey. If you look deeply into this, I think what we're hearing here is Simon expressing a hope. Because what word does he use to describe Jesus? If this man were a prophet, if he were a prophet, he's a religious person waiting on another leader to come and do something. Why would he be doing that? As someone who was steeped in the Old Testament, someone who'd done all kinds of studying, Simon would have been waiting, like a lot of faithful Jews were waiting, for a Messiah. And one thing we do know about the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament is it was a really long period of time. Some scholars think maybe a couple hundred years. And it just doesn't seem like God was speaking or doing anything big during that time. No miracles that we know of, nothing like that. So if you're like Simon, and you're waiting on the prophet, you still have hope. You haven't thrown in the towel. You haven't given up yet. And this is a really good word for those of us who identify with Simon. There is always hope. Even if you have found yourself wrapped up in religion and you've cared a ton about your reputation, you've been doing the good things, you never miss church, all this kind of stuff, if that's what Simon is doing and that hope is still deep in him, it is still deeply in you and in me. Years ago, I was teaching a class, kind of a little seminar thing at a camp for high school kids. This was at a a camp in the mountains of California. And so we had all these kids, and I got to talk to kids about um, becoming more like Christ, about the spiritual disciplines. Hey, here's why it's important to read your Bible. Here's why it's important to worship. All these kind of basic things. And I had this young woman come up to me after I finished teaching. And she said to me, hey, I like what you had to say. I'm a pastor's kid. And I've done all this stuff that you've talked about, like, for a really long time. I've read my Bible. I've gone to church. Like, that's kind of the thing, right? Like, I'm a pastor's kid. This is what we're supposed to do. And she said to me, does that stuff still matter? Because I think I've just been kind of doing it. I don't think I've been doing it like you were talking about doing it. To really know Jesus, to really learn about him. I've just kind of been doing it because I was told to do it. Should I stop doing it? What a... Incredibly vulnerable moment for her, right? And so I said, wow, I I really appreciate your honesty. I don't know the situation that you're coming from, but if we can think about it together, here's what I think. I think you should keep going. Even if you've been doing stuff and it feels perfunctory, even if you have been kind of keeping up this thing and you're not sure if this is really you, even if it feels like you've been putting it on because your family told you to, God is still doing something in your life you're talking to me because we're having this conversation that was a powerful moment for me it turned out many years later that that young woman and I would cross paths again and it turned out that was a really transformative time in her life where kind of the the faith that she had sort of inherited from her parents really started to become her own and I'm not taking credit for that I'm just saying God was doing something in her life God is doing something in Simon's life and if you relate to Simon if you're going yeah I get it there's hope there is always hope. I'm not painting Simon up to be the bad guy. So Jesus understands where Simon's coming from. He gets his motivations, but that's where we get into the final thing we need to say about Simon. What's the belief system that's actually ruling in his heart? What's the thing that's actually driving him, moving him toward this conversation with Jesus? Jesus knows what's running through Simon's mind because he's Jesus, and then he invites Simon into a parable. He invites him into a teaching. And if you think about it, it's kind of fun. There are all these Pharisees, all these other religious leaders sitting around, and one of them kind of steps into their midst and goes, hey guys, I got a scenario for us. Are you ready? And they all go, oh yeah, you're going to tell us some old chestnut or some story that we've used in one of our teachings. And instead he comes up with something completely original. That's a game changer. He speaks Simon's language. He comes to him talking about power and about money. And if there's one thing we know the Pharisees loved, it was power. And one thing that they probably had, which Simon seems to have had, which was money. Jesus says, there's a creditor. One guy owes 50 bucks, another guy owes 500 bucks. The debts are forgiven. Simon, you're a subject matter expert in forgiveness. What do you say? Who loves the forgiver more? Who is filled with more love after this exchange? And Simon goes, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do know a little bit about forgiveness. Um, Thank you for asking me about this, Jesus. Yes, well, you know... It's the one who is forgiven more. And it's the right answer. The right answer is not the point. Jesus did not invite Simon into sharing this dialogue to give him a pop quiz. Because of what happens in 44 through 50, where Jesus systematically pulls apart his answers and his receptivity to his presence, he shows Simon how little he understands grace. And I don't know about you, but I would be terrified to have Jesus speak this into my life, of how little I understand grace, of how much I've missed so many opportunities to love and care for others, to love and care for him. But this is what he offers to Simon. I bet it was brutal. Jesus points out, it's not about the parable, it's about your actions, Or in Simon's case, your lack of action. His heart has not been changed. How do we know that? Look at verse 47 with me. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, Susan's sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, therefore, she has shown great love. You missed showing great love, Simon. And then, the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Simon, you don't believe you need to be forgiven for anything. You don't believe you've done anything wrong. You don't think you've rocked the boat. You think, in fact, the boat's better because you're on the boat. And it's not about doing stuff to get something from God. The gospel is not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel is, I'm accepted, and therefore I obey with grateful joy. And that is what Simon is missing. To whom little is forgiven, loves little, or as the message puts it, if the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. Jesus is showing Simon and many of us that we don't actually believe the gospel. We don't actually believe it because we keep trying to earn it. We keep trying to say, okay, God, if I go do a bunch of good things, that'll make me feel better because I did a bunch of bad things on Tuesday, right? It doesn't work that way. We believe that our knowledge will save us. We believe that our position in our company will will save us or our boss will save us or our boss liking us will save us or the success of our children or our soccer team or whatever it is. We believe those things will save us and in those moments, we don't believe the gospel. And I have those moments all the time. So how do we apply this to our lives? If you're not a follower of Christ, I would invite you to consider what's the thing you're looking for to save you? We all have it. For Simon, it was keeping the rules and looking smart. I think we can all relate to that. If you are a follower of Jesus, what are you trying to replace Jesus with? What are you trying to put in the place that he rightfully belongs? Who or what do you believe will save you and give you the power and the respect that you long for? Who are you stepping on like Simon tried to step on Jesus to get what you want? Who are you trying to use to make yourself feel good? And if you're a Christian, how can you make this s- critical difference between the gospel and religion, between living with grateful joy and living to keep the rules and earn some favors? How can you make that difference clear to your friends and your coworkers, people who are far from God? Because that distinction, I believe, will save people's lives. It has the power to change the world. And I'd offer one final encouragement before we turn to Susan. Denise talked about this last week in her sermon. Be present. Show up and tell the truth. That is one of the ways that we can enact the forgiveness that has not been received by Simon, but that we have received who follow Jesus and who do so not perfectly, but from a place of humility. How could you be more present in the week to come? To show up and be with the people who are around you. So that's Simon. That's talking about how we're trying to earn salvation. That's our... (laughs) The PSP, the Personal Salvation Project, that's what Simon's working on. Susan is a different story. Let's turn our attention to her now. I mentioned that the message translation introduces Susan quite brutally. Like, if I'm reading through this and I've never read the Bible before, this would really throw me off. Susan is introduced as a woman of the village, a.k.a. the town harlot. And if you think about it, her connection to that work, to that way of life, that's a about the thing that the Pharisees want the least to do with of anything they could imagine. Remember, Jesus at one point in his ministry says the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They're like a grave that looks really nice on the outside, but his inside is filled with dead things. These Pharisees have worked hard to keep themselves clean. They do all these kind of rituals. They, you know, change their clothes and take baths and do all this kind of stuff. And their value in that is how they feel about themselves. And then all of a sudden, here comes Susan. And just by being in the same room with Susan, the Pharisees are going like, Ew, ugh. like they're, they would be physically charged to move away from her. And if you're Susan, you feel like a million bucks. People like Susan, though, were the people who came to Jesus. It wasn't religious people that came. Religious people who came to talk to Jesus wanted him to give them something. But the people like Susan who came to Jesus, the Roman official who was so brokenhearted, And her and countless others, they come with their brokenness and their pain and they experience transformation. And that's a powerful reminder for us that we don't need to clean ourselves up. We don't need to get right and then go get God. He is with us right now. Let's look at three different things about Susan that help illustrate this reality for us, how she punctures and pushes through her reputation, and how she shows us such an incredible way to live. We're going to talk about her courage, her care for Jesus, and then we're going to talk about her faith. First, let's talk about her courage. The way Susan is introduced to us tells us something about her. Before she's taken any actions, she actually never speaks in the passage, which is fascinating. The men in the room with Simon, his audience, the guys he's kind of invited to this little ruse of a power play of a dinner, they think they have Jesus figured out and they definitely think they have Susan figured out. Her reputation precedes her. And like we talked about with middle school, with high school, reputations can be so toxic. But this is what she carries into that place. And maybe what she feels like is is kind of this analogy from Alpha, if you guys have ever been involved with the ministry of Alpha, If you want to think about this, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's helpful to put ourselves in in Susan's shoes. Think about if there was a giant screen behind me, right? And this screen followed me around all day long. And on that screen was a ticker, like the news ticker, at the bottom of your preferred cable news network. And it was blown up super big. And all it was showing was my inmost thoughts, my deepest, darkest sins, the things about myself that I'm most ashamed of. And that followed me around all day, every day, and I couldn't turn it off, just floating there for all to see. That's what Susan feels when she steps into this moment, which for most of us is kind of unimaginable, but her reputation has preceded her. Her darkest sins are right out there, which is why what she does next is so unbelievable. She knows that the big screen is there. She can step into the room. She can read the room. She can see these guys' faces. She knows what they're thinking, what they're saying inside their minds. And she comes to Jesus with courage. She comes to Jesus with courage. Whatever we may speculate about her background, her reputation, we know this because the text shows us she comes to Jesus with courage. And the takeaway for us is that when we are looking at Jesus, courage will come. It's when we look at other stuff that our courage fails us. I can't tell you how many situations I've been in. This, this happened to me just a couple weeks ago. I'm driving to a meeting. I know it's going to be a tough meeting. It's with some people that were having a conflict, and they asked me to kind of step in, which is always a fun phone call to get. And I'm driving to it, and I'm going like, I, I got nothing. I, I don't know what to do. I'm scared of this. I'm scared of people being mad at each other. I am not a fan of conflict. What am I doing? And as long as I was thinking that way, I was terrified and my anxiety was through the roof. But then I started to pray, and this is just God's grace. Jesus, go before me to this meeting. Go in front of me. Please go make a way. Please go part the water so that I can step into this like you want me to and make it about you. And the meeting went fine. But maybe even more important than the meeting going fine is I was able to show up to that in a way that I think was way better for me and way better for the people that I was called to serve. When you put Jesus in front of you before you go to your next meeting, before you have a tough talk with one of your kids' teachers, before you go to family dinner, which a lot of us are going to do today because it's Mother's Day, and there's all kinds of dynamics at work anytime there's family dinner, Jesus, go in front of me. Jesus, go be my voice and go be my actions and go live in such a way that when I show up in this place, it's actually you that shows up. That's what Susan is doing in this moment. She is looking straight at Jesus. All the other stuff fades in the background. The architecture of the reputation that has been built up around her is imploded because she just looks at Jesus. That's it. That is how she shows us courage. Now let's talk about how she cares for Jesus. This is really simple. Everything that Simon was supposed to do, Susan did. (laughs) Everything that he was supposed to do to attend to Jesus' needs, all the hospitality stuff, she just goes and does it. She washes his feet. She's vulnerable in doing this in a way that would have shocked the entire room. In this day and age, for a woman to have put her hair down, to have an uncovered head, would have been like basically walking around naked. It would have been scandalous. One of the commentators, uh, we talked about a teaching team, said it this way, the only time you would have seen a woman with her hair down was on your wedding night. That's it. But she comes in and the text tells us she lets her hair down. And what does she use it for? All the Pharisees are going, oh, no, no. We know where this is going. She's putting her hair down. No. She uses it as one of the only resources she brings into play to care for Jesus. That's powerful. She uses her tears to wash his feet. She brings an alabaster jar of ointment to do the anointing of the feet, to help Jesus feel a little bit better, a little bit more comfortable, and it would have been an extravagant way to have loved him. And all the while, Simon's looking on, and he's not thinking, oh, I missed that, oh, I missed that, oh, I should do that next time. He's thinking, what is this woman doing? How can I get her out of here? She cares for him. She gives expression to her forgiveness. Doesn't matter what she's brought in with her. She's giving expression to the forgiveness she's received. And we don't know when this happened. We don't know if she had a previous encounter with Jesus. We don't know if in this moment he's extending forgiveness to her. And immediately she feels it. And immediately she's changed. All we know is that she's a transformed person. And she's experiencing the joy of the gospel that we all long for. So my question for us is, if you're a Christian, how are you giving expression to Jesus' gift of forgiveness. How are you enacting that forgiveness? And by the way, it's really easy to do that with people that we know well. It's far easier for me to try to do nice things for people that I already like, for that I already enjoy, people in my family. I don't know that that's enough for the kind of life that I think God wants for us. I think God wants more for us. He wants us to love and serve people, I think, within one degree of separation from each of us. People that are at arm's length. So I want to know your neighbors. I want to know my neighbors. And I want our neighbors to be here. I want to meet your neighbors. I want your neighbors to come with you to church to experience the goodness of this time and worship and preaching and everything. And I want them to be welcomed into our midst. I want us to bring our neighbors here. I want us, we've started playing soccer. Our kids have started uh, being in the Kirkland Soccer League. And Jill and I have been talking a lot about this. We want our sideline soccer friends to be here. Like the people that we just happen to meet randomly because our kids are running around chasing a soccer ball together. It's amoeba soccer too, right? Like they're all just like moving in a pack. We're all, go pack, go, right? Like go get that thing. But these are people that God has put us within one degree of separation of. And what are we doing with that? How are we stewarding that? Can we steward that better? Absolutely. And I hope for that for us as a church that those people within one degree of separation, arm's length, right next door, the cubicle next to you, across the way, The people you see when you go to the hospital, your students in your school, let's welcome them. Let's make sure that they know that they are loved and doing so out of grateful joy so that they may hear these words, your faith has saved you. That's what Jesus says to the woman at the very end, to Susan at the very end, your faith has saved you. And that takes us back to reputation. That's where we're going to end with grateful joy. Your reputation doesn't save you. Public consensus about identity or character. Man, you want to put your identity on that? Get ready for a roller coaster ride. Because your reputation is going to go all over the place. This is what I think others think of me. How subjective is that? How flighty is that? But we spend so much time and energy on that. Simon spent so much time and energy managing his outward appearance that he forgot, he neglected, to care for the Savior who was in his midst. But he also had hope. And I want us to remember that about Simon as we leave. That if we really identify with Simon, if we feel kind of caught up in those same things, like the student who talked to me after my seminar, there is hope. Do not give up on Jesus being active in your life. And if you're more like Susan, if you have gone through this season where you live far, far away from God, and you were doing whatever it is that you were doing, and you have come back, and you have jettisoned your salvation project, and you are so hungry for Jesus Christ, we need you to lead us. We need more Susans in our midst. When I was in middle school, uh, I got glasses, which were not cool at the time. (laughs) Like, I got big, like, these are 80s glasses, right? Like, thick, heavy, functional. These are not fashionable. It still makes me laugh when I see kids running around with glasses, because I'm like, glasses are cool now. Like, that was a major social stigma when I was a kid. So then the reputation for me that came along with glasses was, I'm a nerd, right? Like, that's what comes with it. Later on, uh, I was bullied. I got pushed around quite a bit when I was in middle school. And so the reputation that came with that was, I'm a loser. I'm a loner. I didn't really have friends for quite a long time. And one of the worst things that happened to me in the midst of that was the reputation that was being put upon me. Actually, I internalized it. And I started to tell myself it was my fault that I was being bullied. It's my fault that this is happening to me. And maybe you've been there, too. That is why our reputations will never save us. That is why the way that we interact with whatever is being put upon us, whatever identity or title you've been thinking about as I've been talking, whether you've got a foul mouth, whether you're a loner, whether you're trapped, whether you feel like you're alone, those are the places that I have been to. And yet Jesus still found me. And he rescued me. And I'm so glad that he did. He rescued me kind of in two different parts, but part one I'll talk about today I was on a mission trip with my church, right? I was a good kid going to church, but I had a broken heart. And I went to rural Ohio, of all the places in the world, and I saw poverty writ large for the first time in my life. And one of the nights we were on this mission trip, there was a play portraying the life of Jesus. And for some reason, it was in that high school gymnasium in I don't even know where, Ohio, that God said to me, I love you. And you can stop it with this reputation. You can stop it. You can be free. That is why we need to share the love of God with those people in one degree of separation from us because no one should live in the trap that I was in. And no one should live in the traps that we've created for ourselves or that culture's created like around Susan and the reputation that she had. And no one should live in the religiosity and the impermeable perfection of Phariseeism. No one should live that way because life with Jesus is too good and it's too wonderful not to share. The reason we started as a church, Bethany Eastside, is because a group of people got together in a house, in a living room, and said, we want to reach our neighbors. We want to reach people in one degree of separation from us. That's part of our DNA. And more and more, I want to see us stepping into that. Because all of us are just bigger versions of who I was in middle school. Every one of us has those dark corners that we don't want to talk about. But Jesus is longing to bring those things into the light so that we will be healed and the Pharisees and the naysayers and even the people around us who love us will see his goodness. They will see his joy. And that is what will change the world. Like the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. So go out and conquer your reputation this week, Bethany. Go out and invite others in to being here, to your small group, to something that we're doing together. But invite them to the hope that we have in Christ and may they come to it with the kind of courage that we saw from Susan, a courage that changed the whole room and maybe changed the whole world. Would you join me in prayer? Mighty God, we thank you because we do want to be changed. None of us has come in here thinking we got it all figured out. If we have, we're sorry. And we're mindful that it is your plan and your desire for us that will bring life. As we consider these words, as we think about what you have done, as our hearts are moved, we pray that we would remember that the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that we are completely unworthy of it. We will never be worthy, God. But through Jesus, we can have your worth and your worthiness gifted to us, put upon us, implanted. May we take further steps in that direction now and as we worship, as we sing, drive those gospel truths deeper into our hearts. We continue to give this morning in worship to you. We ask in the mighty name of Christ.